0: Emotional intelligence I've learned over the years. Some people are in their roles because of their experience. And then the people that get up really high are in their roles because of their experience and their levels of emotional intelligence. And being able to to be part of a cohesive team and you know, make people want to
1: work for you. welcome to another episode of the hospitality mentor podcast today i'm excited to have steven minor the corporate beverage director at sh hotels steven thanks for joining me today pleasure
0: to be here with you steve
1: well steven we jump right into it on this podcast what was your first job in hospitality
0: So I originally wanted to be a chef, so my first jobs were working over the summers while I was still in high school at my uncle's restaurant in South Miami. It was called Trattoria Sole. It actually had a pretty long run. It was around for about 20 years, you know, uh, Tuscan style cuisine, and that's sort of where I began to get my feet wet in the industry.
1: Wow. And so where were you working? Like all different
0: positions? Um, started me off in garde manger, you know, making salads, making dressings. And then I worked a little bit with uh, the pastry chef. So, you know, we had a, uh, a refrigerator upstairs and he'd look at me and be like, go get 72 eggs. And, you know, I had a couple uh, accidents going up and down those stairs in a rush, but it was a great learning experience.
1: Was it tough working with family or was it easy? Cause sometimes I can go either way.
0: No, honestly, uh, Mauricio Farinelli, he was a great guy. Uh, you know, he helped, was looking to help me out because I was lucky that I knew from a very young age where my passion lied. You know, for example, when I remember when I turned 12, my parents are like, where do you want to go for your birthday and most kids you know i grew up in miami wanted to go you know to hot wheels or one of these arcades and i yeah. said t- t- take me to the mayfair and coconut grove to the fine dining restaurant i forgot the name <laughs> of it but i knew at a very young age where my passion lied
1: listen that's pretty funny because i had my birthdays at hot wheels growing up down in kendall so i know it well so if you were going to the mayfair i was playing nba jam at the arcade
0: Exactly, <laughs> hang time
1: yeah so well that's cool to, to know your story there so in high school you knew that's what you wanted to do so You're doing that in the summers outside of Coral Gables Senior High. You're going to work at these places. And then what happens after you graduate?
0: So going back to while I was in high school, I was actually part of the inaugural uh, cooking class with Chef Mercy Vera. I still remember her name. She was amazing. And, you know, that sort of continued my projection. And then I got some very sage advice from one of my father's best friends, who's basically like an uncle to me. I told him, you know, that I wanted to go to culinary school and, and he basically sat me down and explained, you know, this is how much debt you're going to get into. This is how much you're going to end up making an hour. It's a very long and arduous path to, to, to the top in, in that specific profession. And then um, I graduated Gables High, class of 2001, and the Ritz-Carlton Key Biscayne opened up literally across the street from where I grew up and uh, i had no idea what ritz carlton was my parents knew somebody there i started off as a bus boy was part of the opening team which was probably now that i look back on it the most intense training that i've received in my career i think i still know the credo by memory and started off as a busser there and then really started to fall in love with the front of the house and operations was still friends with the chefs you know but that, mm-hmm. Yeah. sort of uh further you know my decision to uh stay front of the house so
1: that's great man so you're 18 years old i think there's really no better place to really enter and start training in hospitality because at that time in 2001 it was still one of the premier luxury companies it still is in hospitality but what do you remember because it's very different than working in a restaurant was there something that stuck out right when you started there
0: yeah yeah i mean i take a look back at it now and we opened in july and then september 11th happened two two months later right so you know i'm sure from an 18 year old busboy point of view you don't really get a good understanding of what's going on but i can imagine what the gm and the director of F&B were thinking after that because that affected the whole country you know we opened up i was there for for two reconcepts and we opened up as aria which was a Spanish restaurant, and they brought a very high-level chef named Jordi Valles, who's still in the industry, as the chef de cuisine or the CDC. And I remember one day I was running food, and me and him would would knock heads sometimes. And I'm running food, we're in the middle of a rush, and he just hands me two plates, and he goes, "Amus bouche, amus bouche," and I'm like, "Don't talk to me in French, man. You know I don't speak French." <laughs> so. That's how I learned what an Amus Bouche was. And, uh, you know, I have a, a lot of great memories. It's probably the hotel that, that I hold dearest to my heart because I grew up on Key Biscayne. You know, my parents still live across the street. I was there last Saturday. A lot of the people that I actually used to work with are still there. That hotel's got a very good retention rate. A lot of my buddies that that I would hang out with and work with from between 18 to 22, or I've been there now for 20 years.
1: That's amazing. You see that a lot, especially Ritz-Carlton in Four Seasons, a lot of like 20 and 25-year careers at, at these hotels. Uh, but so you you kind of start moving up there, man. You, you know, you kind of do a bunch of different jobs. And did you let people know, like, this is what I want to do and I want to move up? Or was it just kind of like, all right, a job's open. I'm going to take maybe a server now.
0: Well, without a doubt. I had my eyes on be, becoming a server as soon as possible. And I, I think I got promoted one year in and it was like the greatest day of my life. And I was a server, man. I was good. I had my own, uh, I set up my own banana foster cart. You know, we used to do tableside steak tartars, table side Caesar salads. And I took a lot of pride in that. I had my regulars. And then, uh, you know, I took it upon myself to do the dessert aspect and, uh, you know, management was supportive. I had some great leaders there. And then one day I forget what happened, but my, my good friend that's still there, they needed a bartender. And uh, I said, teach me how to bartend. And he taught me how to bartend to the best of his abilities. It wasn't really, I look back at how he taught me how to make an old-fashioned or a Manhattan. And nowadays I, I'd be mortified. But, you know, he, he back back then we were making mojitos. And pouring shots of Patron, nobody was ordering old fashions in Manhattans and Negronis at the Ritz circa 2002, you know. So uh, it, it, it was my first foray in the bartending. And then, you know, from there, that's where the passion definitely fell was in bartending. Between there and a, and a couple other steps in my career, I, I did a little bit of both. But I knew once I got behind the stick that that's where I belonged.
1: When you started making drinks, I've seen it go either way. Some that, you know, they're good at what they do. And then others that get deep into the culture, of like, oh, I'm going to buy these classic cocktail books and I'm going to start reading this. and I'm going to go to the bars. Was that what side of that were you on?
0: So while I was in Miami, I was just basically a speed and volume bartender. You know, I, I left the Ritz after five years and then I went to the Four Seasons Miami and Brickell. And worked at the pool, and worked at the lounge, and worked in the restaurant. You know, I could be sort of plugged in anywhere. You know, right around when I when I got to the Four Seasons, and I finally got out of Miami Dade, and I was at FIU. You know, I started voicing my desire to want to move up into a management role, and, and now we're about to go into the second catastrophe that that we've lived. Well, that's through. what I want
1: to touch. Yeah.
0: I went into uh, the Four Seasons manager in training boot camp, graduated, and it was between me and one of my other coworkers to get that open position. He got it because he had already graduated from FIU. And literally the next week, from one day to another, the recession happens. Half the F&B management team is gone. They rescind his offer and offer him to transfer to another property, and he takes that so you know my management career got cut short there but i was promised by my leader my F and B director at that time you know as soon as you finish school call me and i'll have a job and he ended up transferring to the four season chicago and as soon as i graduated from fiu two days later i was on a flight to chicago december 19th 2010 and that's where i really started getting involved in high-level bartending and mixology once I oh. got to Chicago.
1: I love it. And you unpacked a lot in there, but I, I want to go back to a couple points there. So one, you leave Ritz-Carlton and go to Four Seasons. So another premier company. Why make that move?
0: Um, I had moved. I had left my parents' house and I was living across the street and it was time for a change.
1: Nice. Yeah. So you get in there. Was there a big difference that you noticed between the two companies?
0: Or was I was kind of similar? Well, yeah, I love Four Seasons. I'm a big fan. I was with them for eight years. So, you know, in reality, all of the cream of the crop five star hotel brands have the same vision and the same ethos. You know, we're 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 here to anticipate our guest needs, to provide you know the best service we can provide. Everybody's got the same goal. It's just you know a couple words are changed here and there. I think.
1: Yes, as part of the the programming of our brains in there. Yeah, I've been through all of them too. So you're there, right? And you're, look, you're doing well, like you said. But I see, you know, you started FIU in 2007. So there's a gap. But you mentioned you're at Miami Dates. Were you kind of studying to kind of get there? Is that what you were doing? Or was it just like, hey, I'm making so much money bartending. Like, all right, I'll get there when I get there.
0: No, man. To be honest, I got held back in algebra. (laughs) (laughs) You know, 9-11 happened. That sort of affected me. And I think think that semester I might have taken a break and then i just had a hard time with algebra you know the passion wasn't there you know the way our school system is set up they teach you a bunch of things you know like when was the last time you used algebra trigonometry or calculus you know And and i love numbers and i really and i'm you know they're obviously extremely important in this industry But I basically had a hard time with algebra. And finally, the fourth try after writing the president of or the principal of the school (laughs) asking to allow me to take algebra for the fourth time. My algebra teacher was this young guy named Chris Harris. We became friends and he was great. He just had a completely different approach to to his program and his agenda. And and I picked it up. And I remember knowing I found out that I was going to pass. And I remember I was like, oh, what a weight off my shoulders, you know, and now I can finally go to FIU and make beer and, and wine, you know, yeah. learn about wine and run restaurant classes.
1: <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's also, you know, like for listeners, we'll take a little seconds. It's all about the teacher. Cause it happened to me at Florida state where I had to take business calculus and it was the first class I ever failed in my life. Was yeah. Like, what is going on here? And I had to retake it over the summer with a new teacher and got an A. And it was just like, it showed me like, it's all about the, who's teaching, who's putting the time and, You know, look at that with my own kids. Not that they're even that age yet, but like, hey, it's all about who's teaching you. But you got through, you get to FIU, top hospitality school, one of the top ones in the country. Did that change your mindset at all? Or you're like, oh, this is what I want to do for sure.
0: Once I got to FIU, man, it it was a pleasure. It was, I'm doing everything that I already know how to do or that I have a passion in learning more about, you know. I knew that accounting would be a little difficult for me, but I really decided to take it seriously because I, I understood at that age how crucial that would be to my career development. And you know, I'm not going to say I was a straight A student, but I definitely excelled in the courses that uh, that I was interested in. But I, I ended up graduating overall with a, with, a, with a pretty solid GPA. Yeah.
1: So you get in there, you graduate, you got your your was it F and B director that said call me when you finish. Yep. And so who, what's his name? Let's give him a little shout out. Just just
0: to show you how small of a world it is. He is currently my F&B director at One Hotel South Beach. His name's Peter Tishman.
1: Oh my God. All right. Peter Tishman. We got to meet in person, Peter. We always connect on LinkedIn and via messaging. (laughs) So Peter calls you and you decide, all right, I'm going to meet you in Chicago." Chicago. And so as a Miami boy, that's a big change. What was that like for you going to the four seasons in Chicago?
0: Well, I always love telling this story. I land this is how naive I was, you know, ne, born and raised in Miami, never lived anywhere else. Right. I land at O'Hare, December 19th, okay? I go outside and it's it's 19 degrees outside, which is automatically the coldest I've ever experienced in my life. And I was so naive that I was like, "Oh, by the time my birthday comes around, it'll be warm." And my birthday is in early March. <laughs> And uh, we get to Chicago in December and less than a month, a month and a half after I'm there in early February, the blizzard of 2011, Chicago gets slammed by the worst blizzard in a generation. And I know this because all my staff are telling me this that are, you know, Chicago guys and obviously from the news. And and I just get stuck inside the hotel there's pictures of Lakeshore Drive that look like that movie the day after tomorrow. People were just, you know, when, for those that aren't aren't familiar with blizzards, you're driving in a blizzard and you get disoriented. You don't know where you are. And people would just get out of their car and abandon it and run uh, and leave it on Lakeshore Drive. Buses, city buses abandoned. It was insane. Yeah, that was my my intro to a Chicago winner.
1: That's what I can't work there. I've been offered jobs there and I talk to my friends. They send those pictures like their home. Windows freezing and ice coming on the floors. Things you don't even think
0: about. Things you don't even think about.
1: But that's the first place, right? The first place you became a manager, right? You started your your manager in training. All right. You make that change. What was that like for you? Because that's a big difference. You know, I think a lot of people want to become managers. What was that like for you when you actually got that role?
0: It was a reality check. You know, it was I had come from being a server and a bartender and making okay money to making a little bit less than I was making in Miami and being in charge of people that were making significantly more amount of money for me than me. And, uh, you know, I made some mistakes early and learned my lessons quick. Just, just like you mentioned, uh, I took over a staff that the, the rookie or the least tenured person had been there like seven years. I had I had a handful of guys that opened that hotel in 1988 or whenever it opened. So I had multiple 20, 25 year employees. They, you know, the first day they told me, they're like, we've seen 20 of you. So, uh, I actually ended up being the longest tenured manager that that department had ever seen. I, which I think says a lot, you know, made some great friendships there. And, uh, you know, definitely wanted to give a shout out. It's, it's funny that we're talking about this because I was talking about him earlier today. I probably wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for my first leader in Chicago who immediately identified my strengths and put me in charge of the beverage program within two weeks of being there. And that's Bernard Duermeyer, another Four Seasons legend who's now the GM at the White Elephant in, in Palm Beach. Great guy. And thanks to him, you know, he's like, Here you go. Beverage program's yours. Let me make let me make mistakes. Gave me advice when I asked for it. And uh, definitely the first step to where I am today.
1: So this is where I want to kind of focus on, because this is like your origin story, I feel like. Right. In January 2013, you become the beverage manager. And was that something that you had expressed you wanted or it was just he saw something in you like you happen to be leaning towards that more while you were managing the restaurant? It was something that I
0: was basically already doing. You know, I had worked every... I was doing breakfast, lunch, high tea, dinner, bar, but still doing all that and managing a wine program, flipping the cocktail menu four times a year, you know, dealing with vendors and all that. So, you know, it was something that I had expressed the the desire for the position and something that I had was pretty much doing.
1: Now, for, for listeners, can you explain... Not... I don't need a whole class on it, but what is the difference between being a regular restaurant manager or bar manager to becoming a beverage manager? What would you say is that role?
0: I think that's a great question, right? And when you're, it sort of depends how how clean cut the, your job description is, right? If you're a legit beverage manager, you're focusing a lot on training and motivating the staff, right? To upsell wines and cocktails and after dinner drinks and aperitivos, Uh, You're dealing with vendors a lot. Uh, You know, you're creating a program, you're, you're creating relationships with vendors and deciding what well placements you're going to give them, who's going to get cocktail placements, who's going to get wine by the glass placements, you know, what wines are you going to put on your wine list, how are you going to design uh, your wine list, you know? And then also if you're running a bar as a bar slash beverage manager, you're on the floor, you're making connections with your guests and your regulars, you're walking them back, you're making schedules, you're you're disciplining people, you're hiring and cultivating new talent, you're getting behind the bar and making drinks and taking orders and processing cash payments and credit card payments and room charges When while your bartenders are, are in the weeds per se. You're, you're busing tables for your cocktail servers, you're running food. There's a lot, you know, a restaurant, some, sometimes those positions can overlap. You know, sometimes a restaurant manager will take the lead on a wine list or on trainings and things like that. You know, I think that what I've witnessed over my career is when I first started, almost every place had a sommelier. And nowadays, you know, I feel like that position I don't don't want to say that it's becoming obsolete, but it's more for a very specific type of concept. Obviously, you're going to get them in Michelin-starred restaurants. You know, I think it depends on you as the operator as to what kind of P-mix you want to sell. And I'm very lucky not to jump ahead here, but the P-mix or the product mix that I sell here where I'm currently at, is the one that I think is the most strategic when you're you're talking about profitability, right? You don't want to sell tons of wine and champagne by the glass at $40. I want to sell margaritas and mojitos and rosé that I get that's not available for off-premise at a a good price that makes everybody happy, you know?
1: Yes, some of the inside (laughs) tricks we'll talk about here in a little bit that people would love to know about. So you're doing the beverage manager role, you're doing it well, you do it for two years in Chicago, But then you come to a place that we're both familiar with and you end up back in Miami. How does that happen? Was it a tough decision or was it something you wanted to come home? It was too cold. What was going on?
0: (laughs) The winter of 2013 was the one that they were calling it Chiberia and it got minus minus. 45 degrees one day, and I almost we were flying out of Midway on my way to Miami for our first for my daughter Scarlett's baby shower, and we almost didn't make it out of the airport because it was so cold. And then they said that they were forecasting 2014 to be worse than 2013, and when I heard that. But, you know, I had my daughter in April 2014, and we realized how important having a family support system was. And I just decided it was time to come home.
1: And so where did you end up? Uh, the Mandarin Oriental. So Mandarin Oriental. So a nice run here. And so this is something I want listeners to listen to because it was advice I got way back is stay with top brands and you'll always be in the top brands. So you go from Ritz Carlton, four seasons to now Mandarin Oriental, five star five diamond in Miami, Florida on Brickle Key. How was that? How was that starting there?
0: That was great. I I took a step up as, you know, the GM of their uh, bar, Mo Bar, and, you know, was given, you know, free reign to develop a cocktail program. Got lots of great PR. I worked with a really, really good director of public relations there, Alexandra Wensley. Excellent. Um, Got live Spanish TV interviews, uh, live TV interviews, I, everything I could have asked for. It really I, I felt like, at least for me, it gave me a nice homecoming and really sort of opened the doors to all the wonderful contacts that I still continue to this day that I made there and, and after within the beverage community in South Florida.
1: And that's when you came on my radar. That's when I started hearing your name. And so it goes out, you know, shout out to the PR and marketing team there because they really put a lot of effort behind you. And that was a time when the cocktail culture was starting to pop up across the country. Right. Did you have the new Mobar Bar at that time or was it the one still in the corner? No, it had just moved to the new, new location. One. All right. So I'm jealous. You had the new one. I had the, the one. Yeah, I, I
0: heard about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So... You have the new mobile, beautiful in the heart of the lobby, overlooking the skyline of Miami and the water, and you get to develop your program there. Were you able to do what you wanted to do, or did you have to work closely with executives and kind of show them? What was it like there for you? No, to be honest,
0: I think that once I showed that I was able to do my job effectively and have some fun on the side, I was never really restricted. You know, I walked into some. I walked into some partnerships with certain uh, distributors that were in my well, for example, but that was completely fine. You know, I still have those relationships to this day. So in terms of ingredients or cocktail menu direction, it was it was free game. That's awesome. So that everybody that's listening can see how small of a world the hospitality business is. Now, my former boss from there is the resort manager at One Hotel South Beach
1: right? And give a reason why you should never leave or burn bridges, right? That's exactly the reason. You never know who you're going to be working with. Yep. So as you're there, you're working with Mauricio, right? He's yep. the f b director there. Great guy I've met many times. I have a meeting with him right after this. All right. Tell him I say hello. We'll say hello, Mauricio to you On air. We'll keep this in. <laughs> you know, you're there and you're doing well. It's a, it's a nice hotel. I loved working there. I actually wish I would have spent more time there, but I left for another role and you did as well. And this one's interesting to me. So this is one I don't know the story behind. Um, I actually said hello to you at this location when you like you first started, it was like your first week there. And I knew the HR director because I had a staffing company at that time. And I remember thinking like, ah, that's a kind of an interesting move for this guy. What's,
0: what's this guy doing here?
1: <laughs> yeah, so tell me about why you leave Mandarin Oriental and start over at the Gulf Stream Park with the, well I can even say the Stronach Group. Stronach. Right? Yeah. 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 So I leave
0: Mandarin, you know, I, I moved all the way up to Aventura and a, a coworker of mine that actually worked with me at the Mandarin that, be, that became a friend, he was the GM of Azul was with the group. And he's like, man, there's this guy named Frank Stronach. He's this self-made billionaire from Canada. He's got, I, I forget if it's a hundred or 500. He's one of the largest landowners in Ocala. He's, he's breeding and raising his own cattle pigs and chickens all organically. He's got a state-of-the-art processing facility. We're getting these proteins shipped fresh twice a week to this beautiful steakhouse and this high-end sports bar, come by and take a look. And they, they offered me a job and it was five minutes from my house. And, you know, once again, I was lucky to, you know, work with a good team and and sort of have free reign. I had my own borderline speakeasy. It was, it was great. It was a, it was a breath of fresh air. It was my first management position in a freestanding restaurant. You know, the concept I think was a home run. I just think it was 10, 15 years too early for where the area is and, you know, I mean, it's not that far from Bourbon Steak, but I think Bourbon Steak is Bourbon Steak. You know, we were never really able to get it off the ground, but I think it could have been a home run if it would have been in the right location. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was beautiful. I remember walking in. It was. I remember thinking this is big. This place is really big, but you had beautiful artwork everywhere. You had beautiful wine cellar, beautiful rooms everywhere to to put on events, but
0: every, everybody had the same reaction. They would walk in and it was like Swarovski crystal chandeliers and that visible wine was, it was, it was a
1: very, very well
0: designed and, and, and well thought out operation.
1: I've never worked in a standalone restaurant. You know, I've worked in groups that are not part of the hotel, but they're in the hotel. What was that like for you leaving, you know, kind of the structure of these five-star hotels to then go to a standalone startup restaurant?
0: I realized how spoiled I was, you know, you don't have a purchasing manager, you don't have somebody to receive your cases of wine on the loading dock and run into your bar. You know, I was doing a lot of that. Ordering is different. You know, you're not running some some high-end procurement program that communicates with all your other POS uh, programs. So it was a good learning experience. You know, it was, you don't have a, an army of accountants at your disposal. You're working with one guy, you know. It, it was good, you know. Um, I think that it was a unique learning experience for me. It was sort of a different type of clientele and a different type of employee that I was used to dealing with there. I think that people feel more invested once they go through a rigorous training at a five-star hotel and get all the benefits. And they're much less likely to just give up and walk out and never come back and not even tell you versus a freestanding restaurant. So I, you know, that was a shock for me. They'd be like, oh, so and so quit. I'm going to be like, did he give us two weeks? like, No. And that happened a bunch of times. I'm (laughs) like, All right. I get it. That's how, that's how it works. But, yeah, they, gave, they gave
1: their two hour notice. Like, I'm yeah.
0: Before two hours before their shift ends.
1: Yes. So you're there. I listen. And it was interesting to me because like you said, I've never done it, but I, I've heard the stories of everything you learned. Is there anything that you miss from that? Cause I've talked to other people where they're like, you know, there's a certain things that I miss from having that kind of freedom.
0: I'm not going to lie. I, I, I think that I've been lucky in my career to not really have much red tape put around my creativity. I think most of my leaders have been intelligent enough to understand what my strengths are and sort of let me, you know, do my thing. So I definitely didn't have any red tape there. And I, I, what, what I actually learned how to do there was come up with activations, come up with, you know, how are we going to get bodies in the seats during specific hours that are dead and, and get creative. And that's where I started really working with, with distributors and working on deals and case buys and and coming up with activations and bespoke menus and, you know, selling tickets in advance and, and doing stuff like that. And, you know, I think that we go back to the beginning of my career and I'm really lucky I'm able to create close relationships with chefs because I speak the same language as them. I know what a chef expects, the level of respect, cleanliness, you know, whatever, whenever it comes to using their things or speaking their language, I speak that same language and I live by that same mantra. So I was lucky to have a really good relationship with my executive chef, Derek Connor and my sous chef there, Justin Usnitsky. And we would just sit down and be like, all right, well, you know, Let's pick a brand, pick the brand. And I'd be like, you want to do tequila? Let's, why don't you do smoked beef cheek barbacoa? And you'd be like, I'm on it. And we would do it. And we would bounce ideas off each other and share ingredients. And it was, it was really fun. And it, it, what's sad is it really started taking off. And then, you know, they eventually clo- shut us down. But that was probably the, my favorite thing that I learned from, uh, from working at Adina and Frankie's.
1: Hey man, your eyes lit up a little bit. You could see like you were enjoying it as you're talking about it, like the brainstorming. I love that part. That's what I miss about being in hotels. Like, oh, I can talk to the chef. Let's do this. You want to do that? All right, I'll just put it together. And then all of a sudden, you've got this media worthy event or activation that gets pumped out and people get to see. I love that. So you're there, they pull the plug, but you land, I think, in one of my favorite hotel companies. And at the time, it was a newer brand. Tell me about how you joined the One Hotel.
0: So I put in my vacation time at my previous job and my wife is from Argentina. She was already there and I was going to fly out and meet her. And like two days before I'm ready to leave, I I get called in and they let me and my exec chef go. So I go to Argentina without a job. I can't really take phone interviews. You know, Zoom didn't exist back then. And I was Mm -hmm. lucky enough to have a lot of people that I created relationships with that vouched for me. Tires Souza, a good friend of mine from Stir Brands, who I met working at Gulfstream, put me, you know, said, hey, the one hotel's hiring. I had I didn't even really know what it was. Uh, I knew it was the old Gans of work. And then obviously, before I got got my interviews, I did all my research. I'm like, this is a pretty big uh, undertaking. And uh, the guy that, you know, the guy that hired me, Gabby Rivera, who's a great guy, you know, me and him clicked immediately. He's a foodie. He's a drink guy. He knows his wines. We talked about Chicago and New York. He's from New York. And then I was also lucky enough to have a very close friend of mine that I used to buy cigars from at the Mandarin, know my president of F&B, Matt Erickson. So I got I got multiple recommendations to the right people.
1: And then I
0: never really looked back from there, man.
1: It's amazing how people can help you in their career. And Ty is a good friend. I just had coffee with her last week. So shout out to you, Ty. Uh, you, you know, you're good people connector, but you end up in a great place, right? And you've got great leaders at that hotel and you guys really start to develop something special, I think. You started making this kind of special sauce of all these cool things there. What was the experience like, or what is the experience like working at that hotel when you started?
0: It was challenging. Uh, my predecessor left three, four months before I did, and uh, I walked into this massive you know, seven, eight outlet uh, hotels, you know, I think second lar- largest on the beach behind Fountain Blue in terms of revenue, right? And I know you're a Lowe's guy. I think Lowe's has more rooms. Mm-hmm.
1: Rooms, um, we'll compete. We can compete on revenue numbers off, offline.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, sort of struggled for the first six months to wrap my hands around everything and get everything under control. You know, I think I made a, a really good decision around that time. And I was like, I need to create my own systems for, you know, how I'm going to go about things and how I'm going to create menus and how I'm going to structure inventory. And, you know, that was a, you know, inventory for me, the first of every month for me, while I was here in, in South beach was, you know, receiving inventories from seven outlets and consolidating it and looking for errors and finding errors and then having to go back and, You know that took a lot of effort and a lot of time. It was a great learning experience. We got it under control. You know we do very well here when it comes to uh, F and B and beverage revenue. So it's been probably the biggest learning experience of my life because I had to figure it out, figure it out, and create. I was allowed to create my own systems to manage this property, and then I was able to take those systems once. I started working with other properties and sort of implement them the same way everywhere and train everybody on how I wanted things to be structured at the end of, at at the property level.
1: So if someone's thinking about becoming a beverage manager, first timer, like if you were giving advice to them, here's what I would start. Because like you said, there's not really a lot of tools. Like they just say, Hey, do inventory. And you end up counting every bottle and you end up doing all these crazy things at hotels that didn't have structure before. Yeah. any like one or two tips, not a whole plan, but like, Hey, start with this.
0: Well, I think my best advice um, is I tend to see, you know, I hate to sound like an old person. I, I say, you know, the, the younger generation that people bartend for a year or two at, at, a, at a well-known bar and they think they're ready to be a, a beverage director and they don't realize that they're hopping like two, three steps of what you really need to do to really understand what it entails to be a beverage director. And a lot of people think it just comes down to being able to make good cocktails. And yes, that's important. But it's also how do you inspire and lead your team? Bartenders are a special group of people. How do you get them to respect you and relate to you? You know, do you have a financial acumen? Do you have a high level of emotional intelligence? Do you know how to keep relationships with your vendors? Do you know how to manage up? Do you know how to manage down? Do you get along with your coworkers? You know, there's all. Do you know? Microsoft Excel and how to use formulas and analyze a p So I don't think it's just something that can be done overnight. I think that the people that do get that chance tend to get exposed and, you know, sort of like, Whoa, I didn't know it was all this. I've seen that look before on people's eyes. So my best advice would be, you know, financial acumen is definitely for me, at least very important understanding how to look at a profit and loss statement and identify, you know, when you're running, when you're overseeing a big hotel like this, you're looking at a consolidated report with everything and then the individual outlets. And you got to be able to go in there and find out when something's wrong. You know, if your beverage costs came in high, Then, you know, there's multiple steps you need to follow to, you know, to be able to explain what happened. And then I think, you know, the thing that I'm the biggest on, and this is something that I've learned from my current bosses, a shout out to Nick Damasi, my VP, is emotional intelligence. Be a human being. Yeah. I don't know how to overstate that. Yeah, like, be just respectful, be, be
1: kind. Yeah. Be
0: kind, man. My biggest pet peeve is when I see servers or bartenders treating the dishwashers bad. You know, if I won't talk to a dishwasher like that, nobody should be talking to anybody like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's my biggest emotional intelligence I've learned over the years. You know, some people are in their roles because of their experience. And then the people that get up really higher in their roles because of their experience and their levels of emotional intelligence and being able to to be part of a cohesive team and, you know, make people want to work for you.
1: That's a great. Listen, gosh, that's good advice for listeners. Just take a second. Rewind that 45 seconds and re- listen to it because that's truly the best advice I could give somebody, too. So if you're hearing it from Stephen at his level. No, that's what it is. You don't have to treat people tough and be down on them to get ahead in life. Yes, they need to the respect. Yeah, they need to have some respect. Treat everyone nicely. They need to get their job done, but you can do that in a respectful way. So back to this, I love that part. I appreciate you saying that. So you start doing well. First six months hard, maybe first year hard, but you start taking off, and then you become corporate beverage director. Is that something that you said, "Hey, I want this," or they created the role and you went after it? What was that like?
0: Well, I'm going to go back to Gabby Rivera, my director of F&B at that time, and Nick Damasi. You know, they gave me the opportunity to to prove myself and, and work on other properties and see if I was able to keep this property under control. And, you know, we're at almost 10 properties now. Back in 2018, 19, it was three or four. So I've been able to grow, you know, slowly. You know, this past six months has probably been the the most difficult because I've opened three properties, uh, San Francisco, Nashville.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, So I'm excited to talk about that. But did you notice it's kind of like working out like anything? You just keep adding a little bit more weight until you get stronger and stronger. But have you seen your role change as you take on more hotels and have to make national deals with brands and your vendor relationship change? Or is it similar?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, when I first got here in Miami, it was all about the South Florida teams and now I'm not I'm barely even dealing with distributors I'm dealing with suppliers on a national level the Bacardis the Pernod cards the Campari's of the world so it's been a great learning experience and just understanding sort of how these how these systems work and how things are set up uh, from a national level looking down to a local level and you know all the different positions that the suppliers and brands have in place to support people like me you know I think that us as an industry have come a really long ways in terms of creating these brand ambassador roles on, and focusing on the trade and education that really resonates with me. And I think is a key to being a good leader and a good uh, manager is having your staff well-trained and educated and comfortable about talking about different types of spirit brands and beer, wine, sake, whatever the case may be.
1: I like it. So listen, as you're continuing now, you're continuing to grow in November of last year, so November 2022, you get a promotion. Your company is changing. You have a new CEO. You've got more brands coming in. You get promoted again to corporate director beverage for all of SH Hotels, not just one hotel. How did that happen?
0: My leaders uh, pushed for it. That's great to hear. Yeah, they, you know, I I showed that I was able to, to oversee the expansion of the one brand and then got involved with, you know, Now I think the biggest learning experience for me has been, now I'm getting into bar design, which is something that as a bartender, I complained my whole life about, you know, any any bartender that's listening to this, that's worked in a hotel knows these bars are designed by people that have never worked a day in their life behind a bar most of the time. So uh, now I'm really getting to do stuff that I never thought I'd be able to do before. And, you know, Going back to the leadership that I'm under, they realize that, and they're they're very rational people. They're like, you should be designing the bars, not these other people. So I've you know it's been a learning curve for me, but we've sort of got a system in place now. And you know I'm trying to work with Tobin Ellis from Perlick, who I think designs some of the best bars in the world, and sort of plug and play his mixology stations into our new concepts and venues because it's sort of like a one-stop shop you know they're they're just designed for the bartender to barely have to move which anybody that's tended bar behind a bar that's not well designed knows that every extra step spread out over a night or a year is you know you're talking about a major loss in revenue so that's probably the coolest thing that besides all the cool barrel picks and people have gone with me
1: (laughs) now if someone's imagining this in your life you know, they might say, well, man, I would love to drink all day and do tastings all day. Is that what life is like or is it different? I think that,
0: you know, I talk to a lot of people and they say, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to do what you do. And if this is what you love. It's got to be one of the most rewarding careers that I can think of. Educational trips, you know, having the relationships with the vendors. I, You know, I, I'm, I've become friends with a lot of my vendor and supplier partners, like we're friends, we just hang out, you know, so you're creating a lot of genuine relationships. But I will say, you know, flying around, like doing two hotels back to back, like what I just went through. And, you know, what I basically do is I conceptualize a menu, because I know what flavors will work and what won't work. And then I'll send an order guide to whoever's in charge at whatever property I'm going to. And I'll walk in, I'll have to organize all that stuff and then create the cocktails and taste them over and over again until I get them right, document all that, then train the staff and have them make it and taste it with them. So, you know, it's, you know, sometimes you don't want to drink any, not, not that you're drinking, but you're just tasting and, you know, it can be challenging. And it took me a couple of years to sort of figure out the balance I'm not going to say I've got it completely figured out, <laughs> but I, I I'm lucky that I appreciate and really respect all different types of spirits and distillation styles and wine making. I'm fascinated. Saki. I'm fascinated by all that stuff and I can appreciate it, but it's definitely not a role for somebody that doesn't want to drink.
1: And add in your role, you get to work with a lot of alpha personalities we'll say, right? So let's say you're working with a lot of different hotels and you come across the Steve Turk who doesn't want that beverage in the program. How do you deal with someone like me?
0: My leadership style is it's not about me, right? If, if, if Steve Turk is in Nashville and I come to him and I'm like, here's the menu. And he's like, Hey man, look, I, I was just working at the JW Marriott and this drink crushed it. And this is what's happening right now. Same thing in Hawaii. I just, you know, I trust the people that are in those markets to know what's best now nine times out of ten if you if i ask you to do something and you do it and you're like hey man we did this but for xyz reason it's not working i'm not going to be hard-headed and dig my feet in the sand and be like no you have to do it the way that i have my program set up is the only thing that they absolutely have to do that there's no there's no discussion about is the core program partners so like if I if you're in a restaurant, you've got to have just for example, absolute Elix, Bacardi, Mount Gay, and Beef Eater on your menu. If you tell me, if I give you a beef eater cocktail and you say for whatever reason it's not working, whatever, no problem, change it. Now obviously you've got to tell me what's going to be in it. If you tell me it's beef eater, lemon juice and simple syrup, we're going to like, you know, have to meet somewhere in the middle and make it a little bit more creative. But yeah, man, I'm all I actually prefer collaboration. You know, I I just spent two weeks opening our Hawaii property, which, by the way, is has the potential to be one of the, the best hotels in the world. It is absolutely stunning. And I met my bar team there and I was like, I did their menu eight months ago. And I was like, I wish I would I would have loved to collaborate with you guys because now we're going through the tasting and we're making little tweaks here and there and you know what they were right on some of them you know i've learned a lot from my bartenders i really have i listen to them because i'm not behind the bar making drinks i haven't done that in 10 years
1: that comes back to you what you said earlier just being human right yeah yeah just, hey let me listen to the people who actually know what they're doing every day with the customers that they've got i love it
0: i know i i wanted to say one thing on this you know i know that this is a mentorship podcast and something that that i learned throughout my career particularly when i started being a manager is you're going to have lots of different leaders throughout your career. And those leaders are going to have different styles and they're going to have different personality traits. They're going to have different levels of emotional intelligence. They're going to have different ways about how they talk to you. And the best advice I could give whoever's listening is take what you liked from those leaders and put that in your toolbox and take it with you and take what you dislike from those leaders and leave it behind and, and never do it to other people if you didn't like it when they were doing it to you.
1: And and I'm sure like you, I remember the people that treated me the way I didn't want to be treated. And I still remember those people. (laughs) They, They fire me up sometimes still to this day. But you listen, you're crushing what you're doing. You spent a lot of time with me already. And I know you're developing menus for other hotels around the globe. But I got one last question for you and you touched on it just in your last answer. But last question, if young Steven, was starting with you today, just out of Coral Gables High School and he wants to be on your team as a bar back at the One Hotel South Beach. And he's like, hey, what advice do you have for me? I'm starting out today. What advice do you give him?
0: This is one of the only industries in the world that you start making money, you get a big promotion and you make less money than the people you're in charge of. That's a reality. The entry level, mid-level part of your management career is gonna be difficult. You're gonna struggle. And my best advice is if you you have to absolutely love working in the hospitality industry. It needs to be a passion, in my opinion. You need to have a deep passion for people, for the product, and for service.
1: Listen, I think that's a great advice and a great place to end our conversation. Steven, thank you for taking the time today. You dropped a lot of knowledge on us, especially people who want to be in the beverage game. And anyone that you're working with, you've got the answers. Just uh, give your feedback to Steven. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much,
0: Steve. It was a pleasure being on the show. I really love what you're doing for the community. And and
1: come by the one hotel. and, and- well, Listen, I go all the time now. Now I got to have us drop your name and we're going to have to one in person. You know, I go there definitely. a lot. So definitely, I love it. Man. And for any listeners that want to connect with you, how can they do that?
0: On LinkedIn, message me.
1: I can tell you he's active on there. Go connect with them and you'll see some of the best hotels in the world and their beverages and how they're created. So, Stephen, thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. Hope to see you soon. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.